There was a father who had three sons, and the first son was a very uh, strong-willed child. Uh, the second son was very uh, tender, cried a lot, and then the, the third son was kind of right in the middle between the first and the second boy. Well, the second boy had been crying quite a bit, and it was over uh, things that were not like getting hurt, things like that, but just over uh, sensitive matters. And, uh, and he sat down with the second boy, and he looked the second boy in the eye, and he said, son, let me tell you about the strongest man who's ever lived. And the strongest man who ever lived, he knew how to weep. He knew how to weep, and he knew how to cry. This is not a sign of weakness. And that was a good parenting moment. It was a really good moment. And we can learn a lot from experiences like that. But that's not the ground floor of parenting, experience. The, it's not, it's not the, the baseline that we need to go to today. And it's not how-tos of parenting. I can't offer a lot of those. Uh, we've been a parent for four years. I mean, we don't have a lot of how-tos. I'm still trying to, like Sunday morning, figure out how to get a three-and-a-half-year-old to go hang out with the kids um, without it being World War III. Um, we can't start necessarily with even Bible verses specifically about parenting. Paul Tripp does a really good job talking about this in his book, Parenting, which I recommend to everybody, by the way. Uh, we have to start even like below that, and we've got to build up from this foundation, this foundation that parents are children. Parents are children. Um, children of God, we have a father and so the foundation of parenting is a realization um, of who you are in Christ and what Christ has made you by his work. You are a child of living God. So you are a child. And so the foundation of learning what it means to be a parent is understanding that we have a father. How is God to his children? What is God like to you experience, experientially, biblically? Uh, what does it mean to live in a relationship with a God who is called our Father. Not just God the Judge, not just God the Sovereign Ruler of the Universe, but God our Heavenly Father. So that's the foundation. How does God father His children? If we can get an answer to that question, then we can kind of build up from there and answer some questions about how do we parent? How do we, what's our posture towards our kids? So we're going to first look at identity, and then secondly, we're going to look at how God fathers us. First, we're going to look at identity. Second, how God fathers us tonight. But let me just pray and ask for help, and then we'll, we'll start working through it. Father, I just need your help tonight. I thank you that I can pray to you and talk to you as my Heavenly Father, and we can just talk. And uh, I just confessed to early Andy earlier today that I don't talk to you enough. Um, I think about you a lot, but I don't talk to you enough. And I want to talk to you. You're, uh, you are my Heavenly Father, and that you get to define fatherhood. I don't want to ask me how I father my sons and then think, oh, that's how God is. I want to find out how you father me and learn from you what a true father is. And so help us tonight with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so starting point, fathers, mothers. We've got to get identity here in the right order. Verse 1 and 2 in, Genesis, or in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before us, before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, and we are called to look to him in this passage. It's really clear, look to him, because Jesus has authored something in the life of every believer. He has penned it. He has taken a pen to a piece of paper and wrote it into the life of a human being. And the word that he wrote into your life and mine is this word faith. He is the author of it. And he took it to your heart, and he began to write his story on your life and over your life, and faith was born in you. He authored it. And now, not only did he author it, he's perfecting it in you. So as we look to Jesus, we're, we are looking at, and we consider him, we're considering the one who has authored our faith and the one who is continuing to write this faith story over our lives. He's still, with his, his divine pen, still writing in you, and he's still developing and perfecting this thing called faith. And this word perfect is really interesting because Hebrews talks a lot about this word perfect. It's used several times in the book. And immediately I'm reminded of chapter 10, verse 14, and it's a verse that you, Dan, mentioned a couple weeks ago in, uh, in our service. And it, it says this, and by that, excuse me, verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected for all time those who are being, being sanctified. And we have this interesting idea in the book of Hebrews that we have been perfected, past tense, and we are being perfected, present and future tense. You get that in the language here? So we have been perfected, and that's a, that is kind of like this forensic, you know, gavel comes down, this is justification. Boom. Perfect. You've been perfected for all time. Those who are being, that's progression, being sanctified. So this is, this is kind of identity language. You know, what, what separates Christianity from every other message in the world is this idea of just justification. So we are justified in Christ. And justification is this, you know, the ju- judge bringing the gavel down and declaring justified. And many people have rightly said that justification is, is it's, just, it's, it's, it's like this, just as if you've never sinned. But justification is that and more. It's just as if you never sinned just as if you've always obeyed, but then that doesn't go far enough. It's just as if you've never sinned, and just as if you've always obeyed, and just as if you will never sin, and just as if you will always obey. This is this past tense, perfected, once for all time, those who are being sanctified. And this is what you know, Luther said, the doctrine of justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Is, is your salvation ultimately on God alone, in his work on behalf of sinners, or is it God and you? And every religion in the world has this mixed, synergistic idea of God does his part, you do your part. And Christianity is the only religion that says your part is to screw everything up. Um, You're supposed to do everything right and obey. You screwed everything up. I'm going to do this. And that's justification have been justified. The book of Hebrews has this language all over the place. And so the truth of that gospel, that fact, this identity piece of, okay, I'm, if I'm in Christ, that means I'm secure. I have an identity of being in Christ. I'm just not alone in this world. I'm not trying really hard. I'm not living this life as if it's me trying to inch my way toward God. I have finally been freed from this me-centered existence, and I am now secure in Christ. And if we 
don't get this if we think our standing with God is based on our performance, then that, that worldview will be translated into the lives of our children. And where a, a, a misunderstanding of justification exists, um, legalistic, strong-arm parenting, demanding moralism abounds. When people don't understand grace, law is given, and it's rightly declared to be the truth and holy and right and good. But you have kids who have parents who are not going after their heart at all. They're going after everything external. And so you have, I mean, generations of people, as we look back, and we paint in really broad strokes here, Kurt's dad went after his heart, cared about him. There's very few dads, as I hear Kurt talking about his dad, and your dad wasn't a perfect man. You would, you would admit, I don't want to tell all about your dad. But Kurt felt loved growing up. There are many men and women, Kurt's age, who grew up in an environment that was just do the right thing, grit your teeth, clench your fist. And all of that, it comes from an understand, a flawed understanding of what it means to be in Christ. It comes from a misunderstanding of identity. And so if we can get identity right, looking to Jesus and understanding that He's our author and the perfecter of our faith, He's still with His pen to the, to the paper writing this faith in our lives, He's growing us, then we have a foundation of, in the home, creating a grace-based understanding and environment and not a performance-based mallet over the head, I'm happy with you when you're doing well, I'm not happy with you when you're not doing well kind of culture in the home. So if in Christ we're safe and God is not mad at us, we're sons and daughters of God and we have a Heavenly Father, that changes everything. Um, we have to get this. There's no punishment for those who are in Christ. None. Nothing awaits us. There's no judgment that's coming that's going to leave us disappointed. Our Father, Heavenly Father has no anger, no wrath, no punishment left for us. So when we get to discipline here in a second, we cannot hear discipline through the lenses of punishment. Okay, that's crucial for us to understand this. When God disciplines his sons, he's not punishing his sons and daughters. There's a difference there. It's a huge difference. So we have to say more than that, however. So this deal with justification is he's thrown our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's pretty far. And it, there's a real true sense that we have to understand that he doesn't see any of our sins. He sees Christ in us. And when he looks at us, it's like this big stamp over us, mine, okay, in Christ, in Christ. We have this umbrella of propitiation over us. Jesus, the propitiation of the wrath of God, remains over us. We are right before our Heavenly Father. Uh, we don't have to be afraid at all. But the language in Hebrews is really important for us to get because if we're not careful... Um, we will kind of pull that thread, God doesn't see our sin, and then we won't have a category for God's disciplinary work in our lives. Okay? So here's the, a weird paradox of truth. God doesn't see our sin, and He does see our sin. It's really strange. He has a different posture towards our sin. He doesn't see our sin in the same way. But He does see our sin. He is very much present in our lives. He's not angry towards us. He's not upset with us. But He does father us. We have to say more than just justification. We have to have justification and adoption. We have to have this, we're now brought into the relationship with a Heavenly Father. We've got a seat at the table now. And it's not this static relationship where God the Father 
doesn't have a family relationship with us. So in different theological circles, if, if, a, if a person understands justification clearly but doesn't understand adoption, they're never going to understand that they have a heavenly father that they're in a relationship with. There's that, that tenderness, the sweetness of walking with the Lord, um, love, affection. It's going to be this understanding that I am justified, I'm right with him, but this whole category of relationship with a heavenly father is weird. Now, if I get adoption, and most charismatic circles get adoption really well, talk about son and daughter, son and daughter of a living God, I'm a king's kid, okay? A king's kid, son and daughter of a living, son or daughter of a living God. But if you don't, under, if you get adoption but don't understand justification, then you're thinking that your justification is based on your relationship with God, and your standing with God is based on how well I'm being a father or son or a daughter this week. And if I'm not being a good son this week, well, then I'm afraid that my standing with God is somehow on the rocks. Or if I'm not being a good daughter this week, I'm a daughter of the living God. I love my Heavenly Father. I want to do well for Him. I want to please Him. And if I'm not doing well this week, you don't understand justification. So here's the point. You've got to understand justification and adoption. You are justified, according to Galatians chapter 4, so that you could be a son or daughter of God. So crucial that we understand that. So God fathers us. So in the foundation of not performance-based, you're forgiven, you're counted righteous, God sees Christ in you, God, as he brings us to the table in the family, begins to father us, and he goes after our heart. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each of them doing their work to sanctify us. Now, it's our external actions, as we're like not behaving well and screwing up, they don't run God off or make him stomp his feet in frustration. He goes after us, he draws near to us, and he changes us through discipline, not punishment. He helps us. He doesn't let us keep going that way. He will, in love, pull the rug out from under us every once in a while when, we, when our ears are stopped up or when we whatever we're doing or not doing, he will get our attention. We don't have to be afraid of that. But I want us to keep going in, in verse 3 through 6, and I want you to consider a few things here that will help us be encouraged. Because the context of discipline in Hebrews 12 is in the context of encouragement. He wants us to be encouraged by the fact that we're disciplined by, the, by God the Father. That's what the apostle who wrote the letter wants us to, be, wants us to feel when we hear about the discipline of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So he's wanting us, they're going to get three main things here. To, he's going to give us three things to be encouraged. Number one, he wants us to be encouraged by considering Jesus Christ. And he wants us to consider that Jesus endured from sinners hostility against himself. Think about that. We should think about the hostility that Jesus had to take from sinners against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So if we're ever weary or faint-hearted, consider Jesus and what he endured from sinners. Like from what he endured from me and you. Not just the sinners there in the scriptures who put him to death. But us, that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Turning attention and consideration to Jesus and his sufferings, apparently, according to the author of Hebrews, God the Holy Spirit, it can help us to not grow weary or faint-hearted. Second thing, 
that encourages us in verse 4 is, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So, apparently, these people had forgotten that they're sons and the exhortation that addresses them as sons. And so he tells them instead of forgetting, I mean, the opposite of forgetting is what? Is remembering. So, be encouraged. Remember that you are sons. You need to remember this. You're sons of God. Daughters of God. Be encouraged. Don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider the sufferings of Jesus. And don't forget, remember, you are a son. You're a daughter. Verse 5b. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplined the ones He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. Okay, now this is interesting. Don't be weary. So the third piece, consider Jesus, number two, remember that your sons, number three, God loves His sons, and so He disciplines them. And when we think about discipline, I want you to think, every time I I say discipline, I want you to think train, train, training, training, training. And the reason I say that in verse 11, these two words are connected together, and the word means that. It's instructive. It says this uh, in verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but yet later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when we think discipline, don't think punishment. Don't go there. Think training. God's training us. He's doing something in us. Okay? So we have this identity piece. We need to remember that we're sons. And then apparently there is a kind of discipline that is meant to be encouraging and not wear out the one being disciplined. The the discipline of the Lord doesn't push us away from God, but it in fact encourages us. It encourages us. It's It's something good. When we think about discipline, when I think about being disciplined by the Lord, or disciplined as a kid... I just didn't like anything. I didn't like it at all. It was, you know, it was spankings. And my parents, I loved them. They did a fantastic job in so many ways. But there's a type of discipline that God the Father is modeling and giving to us that is a, it's representative of his love. And we shouldn't be wearied by it. And it is, it doesn't wear us out. It doesn't lead us to exhaustion. It doesn't lead us to condemnation. It's the kind of discipline that doesn't make us think, oh, I stink. I'm terrible. It's the kind of training that leads us toward something. Not just away from something, but toward something. So the discipline of the Lord. What is the discipline of the Lord? Look at verse 7 through 11. Because here, if we can get this, okay, here's, here's the point. We're trying to think, as sons and daughters of God, how does God father us? And this passage is telling us that He disciplines the sons that He loves. So we need to be thinking about how does the God of the universe, whom I used to not be a son of, used to not be a daughter of, who has brought me into relationship with him, what is he like as a dad? What is he like as a father? Is he, is he the disciplinarian? Is he somebody that we have to be nervous around? Is he somebody that you know, we really believe and James hit this hit on this about a year and a half ago when he preached at our church. When you kind of picture God, the Father, looking to you when you mess up, or when you screw up, or when you need some training, which we all do, 
The training wheels never come off in the thing called life, by the way. Like, they just never come off. We're never just free to ride on our own. We're just, we're always like, God, give us guardrails, God. Um, when you think about God, okay, is he a good dad or is he a dad you got to be nervous about? When things in your life are going really well, really good, are you nervous about what's around the corner? Is he a father that we have to like, sometimes I like him and, some, and he's great like 90% of the time, but 10% of the time he just flies off the handlebars and all of a sudden there's a fork in the wall and my favorite toy is broken. And so most of the time, I'm comfortable around him. But more times than not, I'm just walking on eggshells. Okay, so what, what kind of father is he? Okay. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, What's that word? Those three words. Whatever translation you have. But he disciplines us for our good. For what reason? That we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems. It's funny, he doesn't say all discipline is painful. Seems painful. That's interesting. Rather than pleasant, pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So verse 10, God's discipline is fatherly care and training. Again, when we think discipline, you've got to think training. This is not just, we don't have to distrust his discipline. We don't have to, because he's going to discipline and train me, we don't have to be nervous around him. We don't have to walk on eggshells and we don't have to wonder the 90-10 thing. 100% of the time, he is the best dad he is, he is perfect. He knows how to father us. He is good to us. The best definition of good you could possibly imagine. You don't have to be nervous around him. Okay? There is a fear of the Lord that's the right kind of fear, and then there's the wrong kind of fear of the Lord. Tender, loving, caring men who are representative of some of the attributes of the God of the universe. Okay? God's attributes, he's perfect in all of them. We respect good men. We respect good women. Godly men and women. And there's a level of honor and reverence that we give to people that we respect. We listen to them. It's good to fear the Lord. But it's not good to be afraid of the Lord in the sense that you think there's punishment coming your way. That's a distrust in the gospel of Jesus. There's no punishment to be handed out. None. But there is training to be done. Because he's a good dad. He trains us. What father doesn't... There's no such thing as a good dad who doesn't want to train his children. 
There's no such thing as a good mom who doesn't want to train their children, who just leaves them and says, you figure it out on your own. That's horrific. So he doesn't treat us as illegitimate children. He treats us as sons. In verse 10, God disciplines us for our good that we may look good on the outside and everybody would be pleased by our moralism. Or so that we would clean the outside of the cup. He disciplines us so that we would get in line and nobody would be embarrassed by us. God wouldn't be embarrassed because we're all doing the right thing. So what it says. See, this is where practical implications for parenting come in. Um, God isn't embarrassed by you. He knew everything that you would do, every silly and foolish thing that you would say before the foundation of the world and said, that's mine. He knew every lack of faith, every day of difficulty and chose you to be his son or his daughter. That's pretty powerful. So his goal and his aim for you as he's training you is not external conformity to cultural or Christianity, Christian cultural external holiness codes. He's not after, he's not after that. He's after something internal. Okay, he's training us from the inside out. In verse 10, trains us for our good that we, that, there's the purpose of this training that God the Father does, trains us, verse 10, for our good that we may share in His holiness. He is training us up and building us up that we would share in His holiness from the inside out. This is not, uh, again, I went to Pentecostal college and holiness had a totally different meaning in a Pentecostal college than this means. God is not after Wearing the appropriate clothing or anything like that. Now, if you're wearing inappropriate clothing, by the way, man, if your shorts are too short, get some longer shorts, for goodness sake. Um, holiness. True holiness. Inside out. That's what he's training us toward. And friends, holiness is freedom. Holiness, can you imagine being more free from the sins that entangle you right now? What if, right now, all the sins that you're dealing with and all the things that you want to do that are right, more prayer, whatever, imagine you were doing those things and not doing the bad things from the inside out. Let me ask you this. Does that sound freeing? Doesn't it sound freeing to be free from the trappings of the flesh and the entrapment of the enemy and the assaults and the arrows Holiness is freedom. And that's what God is after in training us. He is after the heart. He's after the inside out. Inside out transformation. God's goal for us is holiness. We could say God's goal for us is Christ-likeness. That's the, he is the epitome of holiness. God is training us so that we would be more like Jesus. And this is beautiful. This is, this is what we have to understand as sons and daughters of God. What is God doing in our life? What is he up to? Is are things in our life, and as we look back in our past, is it all random? You know, Jordan and I are coming up off on two and a half years right now, and we've talked about this two and a half year hump. Um, first year of minute, first ministry position was at the Journey in, in Heron. Two and a half years, and our church merged with Cornerstone. And then we were at Cornerstone for two and a half years. 
And then I was at Christian Covenant for two and a half years. And now, at the end of this month, two and a half years. It's a huge hurdle. Like, it's like, I'm I'm excited. We're excited. We're talking about, like, we're ready to get past that two and a half year mark. What was those, like, what was happening in those last three ministry experiences? Was it just, in one of them, I was treated horribly, horribly. It was inexcusable behavior. It was just really bad. Was that random? Was that God's punishment on me? Or a sign of his absence? Verse 11, in the moment, God's discipline seems painful. Again, I love that it says seems painful because I want to talk back to God and say, is painful! Is painful! Not just seem... Like, come on, validate this pain here, God. Like, ah, woe is me. Seems painful rather than pleasant. (laughs) Like, the implication seems to be, like, we should see it as pleasant. Oh, God's training me. Oh, He's training me. But here's what happens. Rather than pleasant, but later it yields. Later, perspective, looking back. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, who wants some of this? We can't understand all that it means. But who, who wants some of this? Peaceful fruit of righteousness. Anybody want some of that? That's a fruit that I want to bite into and savor it and feel all the flavors there. There's a sweetness there, and it's just the greatest kind of sweetness that you can taste. It's just like that fruit, the kind of fruit that you can eat in the garden. It's not on the tree of good and evil. But I have to ask the question, when we talk about God's discipline, we have to ask, okay, what is discipline? And then we're going to be done here in literally just five minutes. What is the discipline of the Lord? Okay, because it doesn't say exactly what God's discipline is. It just says that He disciplines us as sons. And it leaves it kind of open-ended. What is the training of the Lord? What, what is it? Can you pinpoint it? And I would like to... I'm... I want you to consider this. I, I think, clearly, because God is sovereign and He is Father, which that, that paradigm too can be so helpful. God isn't just sovereign. He's a sovereign Father. The world has no claim on this, but you do. And the Spirit's inside of you crying, Abba, Father, you have a sovereign God of the universe. He's not just the sovereign judge and ruler, disconnected. There's a tenderness that we have not found anywhere else in this world that is found in God the Father. There is a strength, that it, a power, I mean, eminence, all the, impass, all the passibilities and impassibilities and all the, uh, the omnis, all belong to Him. And yet, Jesus tells us, pray our Father who art in heaven. Like, there's something beautiful about that. So what is the discipline of the Lord? And here's what I want to... Uh, Challenges to think about. What are these two and a half years? And what is all that, what felt like random stuff? And all the pain and the arrows and the words and the slander that I've experienced personally, and I'm sure you have. Look back at your life. And I just want for, for you for a moment to consider. Look back in your life. What has made you love Jesus more? What has made you love Jesus more in your life? What has made you more patient and kind? Sometimes your children, although they are a gift from the Lord, they're also training from the Lord. What has made you more patient and kind? 
What has made you change as a person? You realize that all of us need to change. Who we are needs to change. That's big. What has the Holy Spirit used to make you yield to the fruit of righteousness? So when we consider, we look back, we kind of look, get the history lenses on our eyes and our life. Behold the discipline of the Lord. There's the training of the Lord. What has brought you to more Christ-likeness? Behold the training of the Lord. This is the discipline of the Lord. It doesn't have to be um, a difficult, crazy event. It can be something as simple as trying to, like, I, I'm going to have to, God, help me be patient with my child. He's training you through, the, through your child. This is the discipline of the Lord training you. So what has made you more Christ-like? There's the training. There's the discipline of the Lord. And this is loving. I mean, this is, this is God. He's after your heart. He's not just saying, wear a suit on Sunday morning. He's not just saying, don't drink particular drinks. He's not just saying, don't play cards. He's not just saying, whatever. He's not just saying, do more stuff. He's not just saying, get busier in church activity. He's not just saying, read your Bible more. He's after your heart. Changing you from the inside out. He loves you. He's your Heavenly Father. So John Eldridge, I can't endorse everything that he says, but this is really this has been so helpful for me the last four or five years, or three or four years, uh, to understand this. And I've kind of modified it to, not, to make it more, for, more than just for men. Here's what he says. What I'm suggesting is that we reframe the way we look at our lives as believers. So how do we see our lives as believers? He's suggesting a reframing of that, okay? And the way we look at our relationship with God. The reframing begins when we see that the life of the believer is, the, is a process of discipline, training. A process of training into maturity. He's training us. The life of the believer is a process we are training. Sanctification. As for God, I believe what he's primarily up to at any point in a believer's life is disciplining or training them. He's training them so much. And this is this is crucial. So much of what we misinterpret, misinterpret as hassles or trials or screw ups on our part are, in fact, God fathering us, fathering us, taking us through something in order to strengthen us or to heal us or dismantle some unholy thing in us. I love that. I love that. So as we look back in our life, we look at we don't just see static decree, we see fatherly care. We don't see stoic ordering of the universe. We see a God who's intimately involved in the universe. We see him caring about our very transformation. You. He cares about you. Not just us, he cares about you. He's transforming you. So here's a few takeaways. I have five takeaways and then I'm going to kind of like set the table a little bit for next week because this, the foundation here I think we can kind of summarize in five takeaways and then next I'm going to give kind of like three uh, teasers for next week. So first the five takeaways. Number one, my standing with God is not based on what I do but on what Christ has done. That's the foundation. My standing with God is not based on what I do but what Christ has done. 
Therefore, God's love for me is not based on what I do. I'm not earning more of God's love by being here on a Wednesday night. And I'm not earning less of God's love by not being here on a Wednesday night. We don't have brownie points where God kind of drops a little gold nugget in our sock because we came on Wednesday night. Number three, I am God's child, he is my father. Some of these are repetitive, but we need to get this. I am God's child, he is my father. Number four, he disciplines his children for their good. He loves us and he is concerned with our heart transformation. Holiness from the inside out, Christ-likeness. Number five, we learn to parent our children by understanding that we too are children. Children with a father. Let me say that again. We learn to parent our children by understanding that we too are children. Children with a father. Now, teasers for next week. Number one, we want to show our kids that our love for them is not based on what they do or don't do. Our love is on them, period. No matter what they do or don't do, our love for them is not based on their performance. We love them no matter what. Our home is not and will not be a works-based battleground for the affection of the parent. Our kids should not try to figure out what will get us to say, I'm so proud of you. And live their life for those words. Finding out what is it in life that I can do to get those words to come out of my dad and my mom's mouth. Because the kids will find that out. They'll either be crushed by that expectation or they'll live for it. And you'll control them the rest of their life. That's not good. Or you'll push them away. Number two, our discipline toward our children is never in wrath. Uh Uh-oh. Sometimes my discipline is out of anger. That's why I need to know my Heavenly Father is not angry with me. It's just huge. Our discipline toward our children is not in wrath, but in love. We want from our children heart transformation. We are going after them. We're not going after this image of what we want them to be. We're not looking to parade them in front of people so people will be proud of us. We're not trying to validate our efforts in this life by how they're doing. We are free from that. So our parenting isn't parenting with one eye on them and our other eye on every church member. Wondering, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? What are they thinking? Am I doing a good enough job? Am I doing a good enough job? They do so much better than I do. Let me just tell you this. Michael Kelly, I love this. The guy who preached at our conference. He said this. The best kept secret in parenting, nobody knows what they're doing. (laughs) 
So number two is our discipline toward our children is not in wrath, but in love. We want heart transformation from the inside out. Number three, we train our children even though it is painful in the moment for their good. We are to train them. And I promise our training is not going to always be welcome with open arms from a three-year-old saying, Mom, Dad, thank you. Oh, yes, thank you for training me. Thank you. I love it so much. We do have to train them because they're not illegitimate children. We love them. And so we do have to train them. So hopefully that kind of sets the stage for, for next week. We'll talk more about that. Uh, let me just open it up. I actually went longer than I wanted to tonight, which is kind of my MO. Um, but can we just open this up and, and get a response time?